My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Razib Khan. Uh, Razib is a population geneticist, uh, a writer, um, an owner-operator of a very, a very compelling Substack, uh, and the host of the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. Welcome, Razib. Hey, nice to be here, Alex. Uh, it's it's great to to finally chat to you. Uh, this this is this meeting has been a long time coming. I've been really yeah. excited to, uh, to 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 talk to you. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is the uh, the coconut emoji on your on your Twitter. Um, how how does it feel to be um, kind of a self conscious exponent of the of the multiracial whiteness meme? Um, how does it feel? Uh, just it's it's uh, it's one of those things where uh you know i always knew that that's what i was um there were a lot of signs when i was younger when i was five i made myself a lot of mayonnaise sandwiches um and i didn't really understand why uh why i was doing these sorts of things um you know now you know periodically i would eat bland food and as i grew older i started to realize you know um i might present as brown on the outside, but my soul was somewhat different. And so um, I've kind of realized that I am a coconut and that I am white on the inside. And, you know, I'm just asking people to accept my identity as I understand it and not erase me. So it's been, um, it's been a good consciousness raising uh, moment for me. And I've met a lot of people out there who felt the same. Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting for you probably to see the meme of multiracial whiteness now expand beyond beyond your house uh, and you know include all sorts of other people. Like, uh-huh. what's, what what? Uh, <laughs> how does that make you feel? The fact that you're you're not alone anymore. That this is a concept now. That many people are multiracially white. Yeah, um, you know, it makes me feel less special. On the other hand, um, this is a really insane world. And so all things are possible. Uh, you know, I'm not surprised by any of it. Um, I kind of am willing to entertain anything. And so if you were going to tell me someone was multiracial white uh, and also indigenous and also an alien from the planet Zorkon, I would have to entertain it today because, uh, you know, the ultimate reality is within. That's the insight of 2021. Yeah, I'll um, given that this is the subversive podcast, I'll just you know hit the ground running with with the with the extra spicy stuff. Um, and uh, I, I know you've written about this in the past, uh, you know, uh, on on IQ as a, as a useful metric. Uh, and I'm okay. curious what you think, you know, because now there's a lot of conversations about meritocracy and you know what what it involves to you know have a meritocratic system. Um, and h- how do you think you know the the idea of IQ or the measure of IQ or 
I know it's a complicated measure and I'm not, you know, IQ in itself is not the most robust way of, of measuring intelligence, but there are, you know, it correlates with a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think that plays into how, you know, how we, we view meritocracy in, in, in our, our time today? Okay. Well, um, I think, uh, you know, this is going to be a weird recommendation in light of his recent opinions, but um, Nassim Taleb has a book called Fooled by Randomness, which came out in the mid 2000s. And that was actually before, uh, um, before uh, Black Swan and the other stuff that was super popular. And what Fooled by Randomness shows is that um, there's a lot of outcomes in life that are due to random chance events. And so what was happening in the mid-2000s is there were books like The Millionaire Next Door, which were sh- telling you this is what you do to become a millionaire. But they didn't show the people who did those things who didn't become millionaires. So there might be some necessary or probabilistic conditions of becoming a millionaire, millionaire but many people who meet those conditions won't become millionaires. Um, so the point there is to go to the finding that the correlation between IQ, intelligence, standardized testing, and income is about 0.5. So that means that there are people who are very smart, who are poor, and people who aren't too smart, who are rich. Uh, so, you know, who could be the latter example? Because people will often want to know. Um, you know, there's some hardworking people who are in uh, professions and trades like plumbing, realtor. Uh, they might not score very well on an IQ test, but, um, you know, they can do their job. And, you know, if they work hard, they network, uh, you know, they get lucky. Uh, they can be very well off. I've known people like this. On the other hand, there are people who I know with high IQs uh, who aren't as conscientious sometimes or just got a couple of bad breaks and their income is considerably lower uh, than you would expect their IQ. So um, IQ is very useful, but there are limitations. Um, when people say, though, that it just tests uh, how well you want to do on a test, um, well, I mean, even if that was true, how well you do on a test actually matters a lot in your life uh, in the modern world. Uh, we don't, we're not farmers, um, you know, in 1800 anymore, although even when it comes to something like skilled labor, I think IQ probably does matter some, but the ability to engage in abstraction, to read, to think, to analyze, to decompose, um, all of these things are very useful in the modern world um, in terms of, you know, white collar work, pink collar work, uh, even for, um, to give a concrete example, this isn't IQ as such, but it's just the human capital endowments of literacy. Having a literate population tends to be good for manufacturing takeoff. So this was one of the reasons that East Asian economies were so well positioned for this export-oriented manufacturing takeoff. Uh, you had a bunch of employees, and they could all read instructions, they could all read signs. Uh, now, this isn't the case everywhere. So Bangladesh, where I was born, uh, the literacy rate is lower, or was lower. It's, I think it's now in the 80s. It's gotten considerably higher. But um, they've done okay, but their manufacturing takeoff, their export-oriented-led growth, has, um, you know, it, it runs into human capital limitations. So compared to Vietnam, uh, which was poor in 1990s in Bangladesh, and now is definitely an Asian tiger, uh, Vietnam, because of its Confucian heritage, it was strongly influenced, I think, was it either the Nguyen or the Tran dynasty, uh, they shifted over from Buddhism as a legitimating ideology to Neo-Confucianism. And so they emphasized literacy, education of the populace. So you had a population that was already um, well-adapted human capital-wise to lift off. Uh, in terms of IQ more generally, um, when we say IQ, we really mean the G-factor, general intelligence, which is the correlation across tests 
And so any given test is not a perfect measure of IQ, uh, but it's correlated with an underlying construct we call IQ. The main criticism from the point of view of physical scientists is it's a phenomenon, it's not a concrete entity. Um, you can try to reduce it down, and some, some cognitive neuroscientists and psychometricians have to things like, oh, well, it's like, you know, something related to neuron connections, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is more of a philosophical um, enterprise, in my opinion, uh, because it doesn't really matter. Uh, what matters is operationally, can you use it to predict things? And you can, and people do. Um, in the United States, because of disparate impact, um, officially IQ tests are banned. And so um, what people use are things like selective university uh, admissions and graduations. Now, since those are getting rid of, uh, you know, these sorts of tests, they're, they're gonna figure out a different workaround. Um, but the reality is there isn't one true IQ test like the Stanford Binet. Uh, that defines IQ. You can find a lot of other tests, a lot of other instruments to measure this statistic and to get a general sense of it. Uh, to give you a concrete example, um, I think I can tell this story because like, I don't think people can identify who this person is, but um, uh, because uh, a lot of universities are getting rid of the general admission or the general records examination of the GRE uh, for graduate school. Uh, this was happening before COVID. COVID kind of accelerated it. But, um, you know, I had a friend, he's a professor, and he opposed getting rid of it, but he said, well, you know, I have a pretty high status lab. Um, I'm just gonna look at where they go as undergrads. Yeah. In terms of like, that's a good predictor. And so he'll just use that, you know? So they got rid of the GRE, but instead all they did is replaced it arguably with um, probably a more like class uh, inflected measure that still has some correlation to a standardized test score. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the the, the hot topic uh, at the moment. You know, abolishing um, standardized testing in general, um, and and kind of how how like these holistic measures that they're going to be bringing in, which essentially you know just sounds like you know whatever whatever the uh, whatever the administration wants to mm -hmm. you know influence. Um, I'm curious if you think that, you know, people are gonna default to heuristics, like, you know, where do these kids come from? Or do you think it's just gonna be nepotism all the way, or, you know, just uh, just uh, a door open to corruption? Uh, I think it's gonna be a combination of both. Um, I don't think, I think when it, so for example, when it comes to your doctor, your lawyer, um, you're gonna look at the university, but then the people are gonna look at demographic factors. Uh, in terms of just assuming that, uh, so, um, here's, here's, an, here's an argument for why getting rid of the, of the GRE was bad, uh, the knock-on unintended consequences. Uh, they, Florida got rid of the, of the box, of the checkbox, have you ever been a felon, whatever, you know, in prison. Um, what, uh, she was a, a UT Austin economist, I forget her name now, uh, I think Dole, Dole something, Dole, anyway, um, Jennifer Dole something. Uh, but she, uh, this economist at UT Austin found actually getting rid of this checkbox resulted in disparate impact where uh, there was more discrimination by employers against black Americans. Because what happened is uh, you don't know who has been to prison or not. And so you just, you just you run the, the numbers uh, implicitly uh, based on race. And so when you had that box, the black Americans that did not go to prison were clearly identified to the employers and they weren't as impacted by that perception. And so when you get rid of the graduate records examination, when you get rid of all of these, uh, you know, relative, I'm not gonna say objective, but um, relatively neutral, which is I think a more accurate way to say it, 
uh, what, what's going to happen is people are going to use uh, other cues and indicators. Um, so, for example, um, you know, Chris Rock, uh, late 20th century philosopher, uh, had a really great um, Saturday Night Live sketch about positive stereotypes, you know? And I'm not going to do the whole voice. Don't want to get you canceled. Even in Romania, the, the long arm can, can go there. But, um, you know, he was basically like, he doesn't understand why, uh, why uh, certain groups complain about positive stereotypes. So he's just like, Jews, you guys are complaining about people saying that you're good with money. Asians, you guys are complaining that people saying you're smart. Like, I don't get this. Like, you know, you know, as a black guy, like, I would love it if people were just saying, you know, cheat off the black guy, you know? And so um, what he was getting at there is people have some stereotypes, some certain perceptions about demographics, ethnic groups. And so I had a story I will give is like many, many years ago, uh, um, back during the George W. Bush administration, uh, I actually applied for a job and I gave him a code sample. And as I was working on a project, uh, my, my supervisor, my manager said something where I was like, oh, but that was in my code sample. So you know that I could do that, right? And he's like, oh, I didn't look at the code sample. And I was like, why don't you look at the code sample? And he's just like, well, we just kind of looked at you. And we just assumed that you could code. <laughs> and so I was just like, all right. And so I think what it was was like, you know, there's a certain perception of people that look like me and what we can do. And that's worked out positively uh, in a lot of ways for me. But it shouldn't, as anyone who's worked with uh, Indian coders um, who are not good coders. I mean, you know, some people come out of these come out of these, uh, you know, universities with, without too much, like, hands-on experience. So uh, the stereotype is not always accurate. Again, I said IQ is 50% correlated with income. There's always a res residual. Uh, there are always people that um, are not hitting your expectations. And so I think the goal here is uh, kind of like, um, you know, Billy Bean had this idea of Moneyball, you know, that was written about for the Oakland Days where you use your metrics to try to zero in on people who are undervalued. Uh, but if you get rid of metrics, how are you going to do that? Right. And so, I mean, that's the ultimate thing. Um, I think uh, the implicit idea that's being promoted here is that there is no talent. There is no difference of ability. Uh, there's everything is equal. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm a full accelerationist troll about this. I just think that everyone should be allowed to graduate school by lottery. Because everyone's equally talented, right? Now I say this, I say this to the face, like I say this on Twitter to academics, and they don't really respond. And the reason they don't respond is they don't want to admit that that's just false because uh, there's an ideology right now that's just like ludicrous on the face of it that all people, uh, you know, have talent in all ways. You know, now people aren't going to say that everyone can be in the NBA, okay? Like they have their limitations, but somehow everyone can be a professor. Now, believe it or not, you know, it's hard, you know, it's not like being a, it's not like being LeBron James, it's not like being in the NBA, but uh, being an academic, I mean, even most people who get PhDs don't end up in tenured positions, especially tenured positions at universities where they make, you know, substantive impact on the research world. So, um, and in fact, the ones that are going to be remembered 50 years from now, uh, it will be, it, I, bet, I bet you, like, fewer scientists will be remembered 50 years from now than NBA players alive today, like, in terms of the people who have impact. Like, who do we remember from the 1950s? You can probably 
you know, like a hundred, you name a hundred, that's like 95% of the mind share, 99% of the mind share. And so um, how you pick your scientists, I think is kind of important, but you know, other people disagree. I mean, in public, a lot of it's fake. Uh, you know, a lot of it's preference falsification, Kim or Karan's concept. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because you kind of have the perspective of, you know, you, you deal with these people, um, you know, you've, you've kind of st- at least tangentially tied to, to academia. You talk to them every day on Twitter, you debate them. Um, how, how much preference falsification do you think there is? Because I feel like a, a lot of this information, you know, is not, necessarily that controversial between academics but it is very controversial when academics are speaking to a lay public like there's a lot of gatekeeping on uh you know information on, on you know meta meta narratives that you know are not safe for public consumption yeah yeah i mean so uh, i i keep a lot of that uh, uh you know i keep a lot of it to myself partly because if someone who's an academic decides to denounce me and i know things about them i'll just divulge what i know so um, to be entirely frank, I've been open about that as a, as a preemptive, uh, preemptive strike. Uh, please, uh, I know you have a reputation, a bigger reputation than me, and I've heard things about you, and I will just divulge it to my 35,000 followers if you decide to come at me. So um, it's, you know, like, keep the information, keep the information, keep all your texts, keep all your DMs, um, and use it against people. Now, if you're a normal person, if you're a normie, you don't have to deal with this, but um, so I did a I did a podcast with my friend Colin Wright. He is um, an arch binarist. I don't know if you know of Colin. Uh, he's managing editor at Quillette, and he is a proponent of this controversial concept called the sex binary. And so uh, yeah, and so um, but he said you know he has friends where who were making fun of um, academic friends who were making fun of the, what he called gender ideology. I don't know too much about it. So I'll use Colin's terms, but um, I'm not saying that I really know much about what this means. And now they're denouncing him and all these things. And he has, he has records of what they thought. Right. And so um, it's important to always do that. I think um, in terms of gatekeeping. So I think part of the issue with academia today, and it's gotten way more woke since I left officially um, in 2016 uh, part of the issue is uh, there's a lot of conformity and a lot of groupthink, partly because of the way the system works, it's institutional, it's not just the people. Um, you know, if you get, you live by your grant and your grant is approved by your peers within your discipline, okay? So if you piss off your peers, you're not going to get the grant, okay? And um, also another thing that's happening is uh, the... Uh, just group think, uh, I think like Taleb calls it um, the firehouse effect, where people are all start of converging and homogenizing in the same thought. And then of course you can never be too far left. So, you know, I have friends and acquaintances who were terrified of admitting that they were positively inclined towards the right-wing democratic candidate, Pete Buttigieg in the primaries. That was, that was I've, never, I, I've never talked to anyone who supported Biden, you know, uh, in the primaries who, in academia, but I did know some people who were on the far right who did support Pete, who did support Mayor Pete, and um, one of them tweeted out a support of Mayor Pete, and he got a lot of crap, and I and I DM'd him, and I was like, "Wow, you're brave, man!" And he's like, "Yes, yeah, it's, it's been tough." <laughs> I mean, we were like only half joking, um, because basically the median was Bernie, uh, and to the left of Bernie is of course the DSA and all those other people, and then if you're kind of a you know, quasi-Republican, you were a Warren supporter, okay? 
Um, I'm not joking. Like I have a friend who was like a big Warren Stan and he's always accused of being a quasi Republican because he believes in market principles. Uh, anyway, he has a, he has a background. He has a more diverse uh, ideological or, or disciplinary background than most biologists. And so, you know, he believes in the workings of the market, but he is a liberal, but so like he's accused of being a quasi Republican. Um, so you have this homogeneity that's gotten way more extreme and there are, there are more conservatives or more right leaning um, people in academia than you would think, but most of them um, are deep undercover and they let people uh, think what they want to think. And, and, and it's really strong. Um, I used to put conservative in my Twitter handle. I got rid of it because um, most scientists thought that it was an ironic joke. And I kind of got sick of explaining that it's actually not an ironic joke. And then, um, it was to the point where there's, I'm not going to name who this is, but there's one, like, I wouldn't consider myself traditionally socially conservative in the American way, you know, like, I'm not opposed to abortion rights or anything like that. Um, although I am conservative in other ways socially, but in any case, um, especially over the last five years, okay? Because if you fast, last five years, if you don't move, if you just stay in place, you become really, really right wing. Um, but uh, anyway, so they're socially conservative in a kind of traditional way, and they're the only biologist that I know who's like this. Um, I think I know a couple of others, but they're not prominent. This person is prominent. And uh, I like I, I was at their institution, this elite research institution, and I emailed them, like, hey, I'm here for business, for work. Um, do you want to have coffee? And they were like, sure. And I was like, I said, you know, I just want to talk to you because, you know, we're on the same wavelength. She's like, wait, you're conservative? And I was like, well, it was in my handle. And, she's, and the person was like, yeah, I wondered about that. I didn't know what to make of it. So this person themselves are conservative, but when they saw it in my handle, their prior expectation was so strong, they also could not believe it. And so that's just to give you an extent of like how people signal. Um, so, you know, to some extent they signal, some people, considerable number of people signal that they're further left than other people. And I'll give you another example. Um, and this, again, this is not gonna be identifiable, so it's fine. So it's because I'm open about my views, which is very rare. Uh, you know, a lot of scientists, and almost all of them, not all, like probably like 98% of them are further to the left of me. Uh, but, you know, they, they're not, they're off the reservation somehow and they need someone to talk to. They can't trust anyone. So they'll DM me. And so I get to know a lot of these people, their heterodoxies. Um, I'm also really good at sniffing out heterodoxies, which terrifies people because whatever. I mean, I'm just good because like I have a huge data set of people and I see what types of people are actually off the res. But um, so, you know, this guy messages me and, um, you know, not, basically like I have forums and stuff where I'm like, you can go here and be safe. And, and it turns out that there's someone else in this forum where like they message me and they're just like, this person's an SJW, like you have a mole, you need to get them out of, get them out of here. And I have messaged back and I'm like, actually, I know him better than I know you. He's, an, he's a real life friend of mine. Uh, he's definitely like the, the. The empirical gap between he and I is zero, okay? We have the same view. And so my friend was like, my acquaintance, he's more my acquaintance at the time. He was shocked because, um, to give you some context, they were actually in the same lab for a while. And so both of that, he, my, the friend who was believed that, that there was an SJW mole, he's actually to the left of the putative SJW mole. But that guy was so good at just letting people think what they wanted to think that that's what they thought about him, you know? But actually he's as based as I am, you know, to be frank. So there are people like this. Um, now I will say I'm, I'm pessimistic about their persistence once 
they're in academia because what ends up happening is the lie becomes the truth. So, you know, there are people I've talked to, they've slowly evolved in their thinking, you know, they're still evolving in their thinking. And eventually um, I can tell that they are, their lies are now sincere truths to them um, because their mental Overton window starts shifting. So, you know, if you're like in the, you're, you're only talking to Razib and you're in your own like little mental box, you're not getting the full range of input and you're in this milieu where the social incentives are really strong uh, to change your ideology and you do. And so naturally what happens is you change your ideology and then you think you've always had that ideology. So uh, I have one friend, I think we're ex-friends now. I'm not really into being friends with him for various reasons. He's gone full woke, but um, he was very, very not woke uh, in, I mean, even like three or four years ago. Uh, and I think um, just for his professional advancement, I think it's just been easier for him to just kind of convert uh, and kind of give up the ghost there. Uh, I don't think, I think he sincerely actually is woke now. Uh, I think he would be shocked if I pointed out some of the facts of what he has said to me many years ago. I don't think it would, I don't think he would say things like, oh, I've changed my views. I think he would probably be shocked and like, I think he's probably forgotten, to be frank. And I think this is how human psychology works. Like if you, if you trace the views of people um, in the white, white Americans in the South, white Americans in general in the 1960s, their views on civil rights. And there were some, I think Kandel at Columbia and his work on memory did some of it. Basically what happened is uh, 10 to 20 years later, these white Americans, they all remember themselves as being in the liberal minority. Like the majority believe, the majority of them that were tracked over time believe that they were in the minority. But if you actually track them, you see a considerable number of them had majoritarian beliefs on race and segregation. But um, they don't remember that by the early 1980s. By the early 1980s, they think of themselves as being the brave white liberals uh, that were against segregation in the 1960s. And so I think, you know, this is like a common human tendency. Like, you don't want to accept that you were in, uh, you were just conforming to the majority, right? And so I think to resolve that cognitive dissonance. You're just gonna re-edit your past. I think this is common. Um, you know, I had, this is like a long time ago, I had a friend and we're really close friends. So I know like a lot about her personal life. And uh, she was talking about the men she'd slept with and she'd left two off. And I was just like, what about that? that? She's like, oh, I don't count those. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But then I realized, you know, if I didn't know her well as well, I wouldn't have known about those two. And she wasn't even consciously lying to me. There were reasons she didn't count those guys, you know, in her quote, official count. And so I think this is just like a common human tendency that's cropping up from what I see um, in, uh, in human psychology and our broader social culture in the United States. Yeah, it, it is really interesting because, you know, the, the, the same phenomenon I see kind of happening in tech, which is also an, another very woke space that I've I've lived in for for a while. Um, and it is interesting kind of now now I'm, I'm a little bit outside of it. You know, I still work in the kind of tangential industry, but uh, I'm, I live far away. Now I'm outspoken about my views. And it's interesting kind of how much of a magnet I am to people who 
were you know just normie woke people that worked in the in in these companies and had absolutely you know I wouldn't have intuited that they had any sort of dissident thought or any sort of you know speaking out against anything and then you know they're they're in my DMs telling me about you know uh, all of all of the all of the dark stuff that they that they can't tell anyone else and it it is it is really interesting because it's never the people you think you know it's uh it's yeah it's, yeah. Well, I mean, when, 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 when the incentives are really strong, um, you know, people are going to conform. And so, I mean, I, I think one thing that, that I would say is like, you know, I try to be compassionate and I try to, I, you know, basically I try to, I try to be the best, you know, I try, I try not to be like a petty person. So I understand that a lot of these people will also turn, to be frank. I mean, they have their moments, but at the end of the day, uh, they're not going to stand up to a mob. Um, they, they, there's a lot of people who have heterodoxies, who have worries, who have concerns, but ultimately they conform, right? And I just, I'm no longer disappointed when I see them behaving in ways online. And I don't always think, I don't think it's a preference falsification all the time. I think sometimes people have heterodoxies, but then they just get convinced, you know? They just get convinced by the doctors of the church, uh, by their readings. Um, so, I mean, for example, like the gender stuff, I don't pay much attention to it because I hope that it'll blow over. Um, there's only so many things that I have bandwidth for. Um, but, you know, I read about the evolution of sex and biology and all these things many years ago. I don't think they've learned anything new. So I don't care what my friends in evolutionary biology say when they try to explain it to me, because I just don't think that it's based on new facts. I think it's based on new interpretive frameworks that's been stuffed down their throat. And so they accept it. And that's fine. I don't really care. Um, you know, there are people in Saudi Arabia who have their own framework of why it's actually good to do parallel cousin marriage. I don't care. Um, like I know it on some intellectual level, but I'm not going to get super interested in it because I just I don't think that it has staying power because I don't think that they really understand what they're even saying half the time. So uh, as you you know know, I mean it's really not coherent a lot of the time in terms of like you know you have an identity that needs to be affirmed, but they're also it's not biological and do you know what I'm saying? I mean it's like it's it's gender essentialist and anti essentialist at the same time, and you know. Yeah, gender is a performance, but you also feel it inside your soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you have like a female, you know. It's like oh, um, like uh, some, like basically when I was growing up back in my day, as my my daughter would make fun of me for saying, uh, you know, there were tomboys, and uh, we didn't think that um, they were not girls; they were called tomboys. Uh, and now I see stuff online where it's like, oh, so and so is, um, you know riding around on a truck i know what's what's her name um elliot page ellen page so uh she he he now um i saw something on twitter where it was um like they were in elementary school he was in elementary school she was in elementary school then and they were on some like i don't know it was like a boy's toy and someone was like see like they were always like this and i'm just like i mean there was always that 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 boy who was on the pink big wheel uh most of the time it's because his parents were dumb and or they were cheap and so they were like the pink big wheel is like 50 percent cheaper so they got him the pink big wheel and he really wanted to be on the big wheel so he was like whatever you know you're six or seven it's not that big of a deal it's just like a little funny that has nothing to do with what his gender is as an adult or even his sexual orientation most of the time he was you know wasn't gay. I mean, we were thinking of that, but you know, there's some kids who were probably kind of knew they were different. But I mean, it was just like there's a lot of trivial things when you're growing up that have nothing to do with your identity that are just circumstance. 
And I just, it, I just think that people are now backdating or like backfilling um, a lot of these, uh, these reasons and these causes. Um, just the, the, this is my perception as an outsider without any like deep thought on this. Cause like I said, my goal is to just avoid thinking about it until it moves on or I move out of the country, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's that's one way of solving it, you know, complete exit. Um, yeah, I feel the, the 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 scary thing about it is that they really are coming for the kids. Like I remember, I just saw a picture of like a Elliot Page just reclining somewhere that looked like a dentist's office, and it was like I don't know something about I don't know support trans kids or something. And I'm like, trans kids. I feel like that's that's you know there's being being a lot of you know people are pushing the trans kids agenda quite quite a lot, and you know. Obviously, the on the conservative side, people are you know obviously very concerned with with why that's happening. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's it it is it is super weird to me that you know this is the this is the only spot where children are, are assigned like complete agency over their um, over their bodies and things like that. You 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 don't let kids vote. You don't let kids have sex or drink alcohol or you know take drugs. Um, but you do let them completely do like absolute body modification on the basis of a hunch or of a, of a toy preference or something. Um, and it, it is pretty, I don't know, disconcerting that this is like, you know, trying to be mainstream now. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I do think, um, I try to temper my alarmism, um, and think that, you know, uh, from the vast majority of parents, like there's limits, um, you know, a thermidor always does happen. Um, there always tends to be a counter reaction. History doesn't go in up. So, you know, the uh, our fellow substacker Noah Smith, uh, who I have agreements and disagreements with, wrote a wrote a piece about how social conservatives actually won the culture war. Now, I think this is this is a, I, I think this is a, this is a question of who won, in what way needs to be explored deeply because I think it's too easy. I think in general liberals did win. That's my opinion, but there are there are things that you can point to which are like striking to me, uh, which I didn't realize. Um, so I, 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 I watched Fast Times at Ridgemont High like, a long time ago, but um, I reread the summary and because I've forgotten some plot notes. So this is in the early 1980s, and one of the characters, um, you know, one plot line involves with her going to make an appointment in an abortion clinic, and she ends up having an abortion. And um, it's not like a super, it's not like a very special episode of France Times of Richmond High. She just had an abortion. Okay. That's just something you do. And so to me, I was like, oh, like this is one way where the pro-life movement has totally transformed um, social expectations. Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't have like a scene in a film today, um, at least a mainstream teen sex comedy, which I don't think they make anymore, but it's like just going to have an abortion. So um, something with, um, and then I've talked to people older than me, uh, sex uh, in the 1970s and into the early 80s, like, you know, before the hardcore, like, ascendance of the Reagan era and social conservatism, um, they were, like, really liberated in a way that we, we like, younger, uh, younger Gen X and millennials uh, can't understand. Um, you know, like, we, like, got the, got the videos about, like, if you have premarital sex, you'll die of AIDS. Now, that, that was just, so that was like not really based on truth. Fomento was correct about the AIDS, uh, straight, the, the straight HIV, uh, moral panic. But, um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we got. Whereas in the seventies and early eighties, um, I think it was more of an animal house kind of like, you know, let all things be, and 
you know, um, like I had a teacher who would, who said, you know, back in our day, you know, in the 1970s, um, he said in the early 70s, he said, you know, they didn't, I mean, they didn't care about, uh, I mean, basically after Roe v. Wade, so it was like, like, you know, after 1972, uh, and before AIDS, between 72 and the early 80s, uh, you just took a shot if you got a venereal disease, you know, and uh, there was abortion and there was birth control pills. And so um, there was this period of, uh, you know, frankly, like a lot of libertinism, you know, and that, that, that kind of faded away. And so um, I don't necessarily think it's always like top down cultural mores. Like there could have been, there could be like um, limiting principles or there's an underlying like limiting principle to this sort of like libertinism. But I do think that that faded away. So things can change and go in a more quote conservative direction. And the terms conservative and liberal can be kind of weird, you know, but uh, basically history doesn't always move in one direction. It zigs and zags, kind of swings back. As we know, like if you look at uh, late 18th century Europe, uh, and sexual mores, uh, they were way more, I think we would say, lax than uh, the exoteric norm by the Victorian era. Yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting now because the, in, in principle now, the, the, the norms are, you know, probably as, as liberal as they've ever have been, you know, especially with, you know, sex work being normalized and everything being normalized in the sense that, okay, you know, shame is, is fairly exercised from the, from the public domain. But people also aren't really having that much sex. It's, you know, it's, 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 yeah. it's a weird connection between the taboo and actually wanting to, to, to do it. Sort of. And also like the age and power thing means like you can have, do whatever you want with whoever you want, accept, and the accept conditions are getting bigger and bigger. Right. So it's like, you know, there was like weird people on Twitter and like, this isn't just weird people on Twitter, but what happens on Twitter eventually becomes mainstream. So you got to take note of it where it's like, they think it's disgusting that you would ever have a sexual relationship with anyone who's less than or more than like one year apart in age from you. Like if you, if you do stipulate that as the norm, people are just going to have less sex because the, the partner space is going to shrink, especially outside of urban areas. You know, um, there are a lot of academics who ended up marrying their postdoc or their graduate student today uh, who are Gen X and older. And that's an extremely taboo action today. And so there's, a, there's, there's some kind of tension there where it's like people don't want to denounce their colleagues, so they're not saying anything, but I mean, yeah, even meeting a spouse at work, yeah, even, you know, that's, yeah. that's completely taboo now, which was, used to be pretty much how you met a spouse back then. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's, there's, real, there's a lot of restrictions and constraints now on the so-called like, liberalism, like, you know, liber basically freedom with restrictions is... That's always true, but the question is like, what is the parameter space of the freedom and the restrictions? And you can do anything, like you could say, for example, you can do anything anywhere with someone your exact same age. So that's liberal because you could do anything. You know, whatever kink you have, there's no shame for the kink, but you gotta find that person. <laughs> and now they've limited the space of who you can find. And so I, this, is, this is my understanding, like I, I haven't been dating since again like the first bush term the early bush term uh like i've been in a relationship so for me this is all abstract but i've seen uh people my age who continue dating the changes that they've seen and also younger people uh like i can tell you uh when I, I went to graduate school a little late and so people were about a decade younger than me so they were like more like mid millennials 
And a lot of them uh, were, to be frank, when I got to know them, way less sexually experienced than people in my generation uh, who are 10 years older in their mid-20s. And I know in hindsight, I'm pretty sure we were less sexually experienced than people 10 years, like older Gen X, you know, like the Brett Kavanaugh generation. So that was one of the things with, uh, uh, I don't know if you kept track of it, but uh, the whole Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court thing. I think it is correct that one of the issues that Kavanaugh had is he comes out of like the peak period of libertinism and, you know, whatever you believe about the details of the allegations, there was a lot of stuff that went on in the early 1980s uh, that were depicted in film uh, that we would find really, quote, problematic. So, for example, I think this is 84, um, the film Revenge of the Nerds, uh, the protagonist, he uh, switches his identity. It's like some, some sort of a costume party. He switches his identity and he has sex with this woman that he really wants to have sex with by pretending to be her boyfriend. And it was like a big, it was a big funny thing. Okay, this nerd had, had got to have sex with the cheerleader and, and by the end of it, she, she decided to stay with him because he was a better lover. Um, but I mean, I think today they would not write that in the script. <laughs> like, that's, that's considered rape today. Uh, I think that is. Uh, just like having sex with someone by falsifying who you are, right, in that way. So, uh, but this, this stuff was normative back then. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I met a guy who's a boomer. I think he was a boomer. But he was at Woodstock, and, uh, you know, uh, he was, like, he got in trouble because he was in his 20s at the time, and he was trying to hook up with a 13-year-old. And uh, the 13-year-old's brother got super mad at him. And so um, he, he was like a big biker dude. He chased him down, beat the crap out of him, knocked him out, and raped him um, in a bush. And so my, uh, my acquaintance, he's a professor, he came too. He was being raped by this young woman's older brother. Um, and there was like some Hendrix song going. So it, it came up because he's like, he has really negative association with the Hendrix song. Because uh, that was happening. And so he's just like, you know, and I was just like, that's freaky. And he said, you don't really know what happened in the 60s because they talk about the good parts. Uh, they talk about kind of like free love and peace. But um, everything was on the table for a couple of years. Everything was on the table. So he, he talked about chasing a 13-year-old when he was in his mid-20s. Uh, so he was older. He was like silent generation, I guess. But anyways, uh, he talked about this without like that much shame. And he said, I know that, you know, you probably judge me. This was in like the 1990s. He was telling some of us, uh, you know, some of his students. And he's like, but you have to understand, like in the late 60s, we thought free love was free. And that just wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't taboo at all. Uh, that you know, like he 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 kind of resented that the guy got mad, that the the older brother got mad. So I'm just telling you the story to that there's a lot of history that is not surfaced to us uh, because people try to kind of repackage things in a more anodyne way. So the late the late 60s, like crime spike, reflected a level of social and cultural chaos that we don't empirically. Um, I think as younger people really know, partly because the, the, the films uh, and everything like that kind of, you know, it's like World War II. Uh, a lot of us don't intuit how gory World War II was because the, the, in the United States, at least, the movies make it uh, much more um, septic.
you know, or like antiseptic. They, they, you, don't, you don't see, like except for like Saving Private Ryan, like a lot of the older films, you don't see how gory it was. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a, a shocking story, man. But yeah, I think, I think that's, that's true. Like the, um, a, a lot of what I see now with, you know, consent culture and trying to bring in the, this kind of, you know, almost like Protestant prudery through the back door uh, in the form of, you know, just, you know, pure liberalism and, and trying to, to constrain the relationship between you and the other person. Um, without saying, okay, this is what God wants, but this is, you know, this is under the norm of consent. Um, and then you also have things like, you know, the idea of catching feelings and, you know, it's like you can have sex with like this weird, you know, affirm affirmative consent model where you're always kind of at risk from the other person not consenting and you not understanding what they want and you and they not understanding what you want. Um, but it's all kind of in these super strict parameters where you're also not really, you don't have any obligation towards the other person. So if, if for example, I want to have a sex to have a relationship with someone, that's kind of off the table because that's not part of the, the liberal model. You know, it's like, you know, you better not be catching feelings right now because this is, you know, you're, you're not doing it right if you are. It's a, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a bit of a maddening system because, you know, a lot of the stuff that used to be on the table is now off the table because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's considered too onerous for the, for the free individual. Yeah, uh, I think one thing I'd say, one reason that some people are going towards more traditional arrangements. Uh, so I don't know, have you had Justin Murphy on this podcast yet? Yeah, I'm so, I mean, Justin, I mean, he's doing, you know, of course he's got a cultural pro culturally appropriate um, you know, brown traditions, you know, with the arranged marriage thing. But I mean, the reason that stuff like this is coming up is because, I mean, people need alternatives. Um, the systems and uh, just like the norms that were set up in the late 20th century, they've just spun out of control. Because um, there was there was a period where, you know, dating was fun and it was relaxing and it could lead to getting married. You know, I'm married, you know, like I met my, my spouse in college and uh, you know, I was, you know, it's it just, it was a natural thing. And now it just seems really stressful because all of the rules have just like cramped in and, and scaffolded everything. And everything is too, like, it's basically like, it's like nothing matters. And so everything matters, if that makes sense, where it's just like, uh, everything is just really high strung uh, from what I see in the date of people who want to have, people who want to have a relationship. Right, like now, if you don't ha want to have a relationship, I think um, you're good to go. And the reality is, there's a lot of people who go through life phase where they don't want to have a relationship, so they're happy then. But then, once they go to the next phase, they're not happy. And so we have this situation where uh, I think the cultural norms, like, kind of satisfy only a subset of people's life cycle, and so only a small number of people are quite happy with them at the given time and then they go to the next stage and they're like okay like what do i do now like there's no exit uh, you know the whole dating market is just it, it's like we have all these technologies we have all these technologies now if you're a certain type of person um these technologies are really good so i have friends that are in their 30s uh that are pretty successful professionals and uh that are men and um, they have issues with just basically like, too many options um, because there's like, a lot of women who want to settle down then. And, you know, they have the, they have the statistics, they have, uh, 
they have like the incomes, the equity, the wealth, uh, you know, all of the things that you want on paper. And so that's, and they kind of get annoyed by the attention they get, partly because they didn't get it in their 20s. Because in their 20s, they're like young and they're, you know, people don't take them seriously. These women think that they don't want to settle down. So it's just kind of like things have changed overnight for a lot of people that I know once they go beyond 30, if they're men, as long as they're fit and doing okay in general. Um, but uh, they're not psychologically ready for it. And, you know, obviously that's not most people. Like most people are not, you know, moderately, at least minimally fit, you know, 30 something male professionals, right? And there's all these other types of people who are not getting their needs served in this, in this dating market uh, from what I can see. But I have to say like that group, um, uh, they can choose and do what they want from what I have seen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they complain to me about like too many options and I'm like, dude, shut up. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's not a real complaint. They're, they're kind of right in a way in the sense that it's really hard to, even if they, if they were to be, you know, inclined to settle down and have a family and stuff, you know, you, you kind of, uh, I don't know, you, your, your brain turns to mush after a while because you're looking for someone who has, you know, the complete package, but now you know about all the features, you know, you know about like, you know, 20 different aspects that you find in, in each woman, you know, that, that's absolutely great. And you want, you just want to find one that has them all. And then you just kind of churn through it. And obviously none, none of them, none of them has the, has a whole checklist. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, like I said, it's really abstract for me. I mean, I've just observed things uh, that have left me just like really shocked and confused, uh, you know, um, in terms of people that I know and like why, I mean, what is going on in our culture that these people want to be married or want to be in a relationship, they're still single and they're unhappy and we have all these technology, we have all this money, we have all these consumer goods and people are still left empty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for on the on the side of the women, it's probably you know even even more distressing because you know the as time goes on, you know you a, a lot of women can get dates with these guys, but they don't really want to settle down with them. And then you know if you're a thirty something woman, you know that's that's probably you know high high up on the list finding someone you want to spend more time with. You know at least have a long term relationship. Uh, and then you you get a little bit crazy <laughs> after the twentieth date where the guy doesn't call you back and you think oh god you know why why am I defective and then obviously these guys end up dating these same women and they're like okay these women are unstable yeah they're they're unstable because they've been through this yeah, <laughs> through the yeah, ringer yeah. with yeah, these yeah, apps yeah. and all that no I, I have a friend who um I mean he's not unfortunate because I think he'd be a good dad he's basically stopped having really I mean he's he's a really successful engineer and he's not he's not Asperger's or autistic although he's a little weird but he basically stopped dating and now just like has his hobbies because he can't be bothered with relationships because uh uh he just he can't deal with the stress uh of like dating women where it's like you know I mean you know he's when he stopped dating he was in his mid-30s and he was one of the ones who like clued me into the fact that everything changes after 30 um, and everything flips and he is, was not psychologically prepared, uh, to be basically pursued, uh, to be overwhelmed with kind of people, women that really wanted to settle down and have children and all this stuff. And, you know, he's kind of, I don't want to say he's mentally frail, but it's just, he can't deal with that stress. And so at 35, I just noticed he stopped dating and, you know, it's been a decade now and, you know, I've talked to him a couple of times and he's just, yeah, I'm just happy being single. Uh, I can't deal with the stress 
of the modern dating market. And this is a guy who gets a lot of like inquiries, you know, or he did, he did 10 years ago and he quit because uh, it was just too stressful for him. Now in an alternate universe, like perhaps he would have had a matchmaker, like, you know, arranged marriage. I don't know. Like, it sounds crazy for me to say, uh, but I think this is a guy who in a less like high intensity dating market would actually have settled down. He just couldn't deal with like all like the psychological pressures of it. And again, this is a guy who didn't have a problem getting dates. That was actually the issue. It was just too much coming at him and too many demands. And he didn't know what to say to these women because, you know, he's, you know, his honest answer would be like, uh, I don't know if it's going to work out, but like, they don't want to hear that. Like, I mean, they're, they're looking, you know, they're in it to win it. And so like they would get offended and all this stuff and, you know, ask him why he didn't want to settle down. And, and he was like a guy who, I mean, he'd had some relationships in his twenties, but you know, it was just like, he had not had to deal with this at all in his twenties because he was just a poor graduate student, you know? And so he had no preparation for it to like flip on a dime and he was a wanted commodity and it just stressed him out. It literally stressed him out. And so now he has his hobbies of woodworking and riding his bike. And that's what he does with his free time instead of like raising a family. So it's kind of sad because uh, I've known this guy since I was 18. He's a really good guy. He's obviously smart, a little eccentric, but uh, the market, uh, the culture is not set up for someone like him. Yeah. And it seems like there's, there's very few people who the culture is, is set up for. Like in terms of, of women on the female side, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a massacre. It's very, it's very, very hard. You know, because it's it's just kind of one of those things, you know, at least, you know, the guys with the high leverage position, you know, at least if they want to get off the off the roller coaster, they can. But for a lot of women, it's like it's just it's just maddening because, you know, they've had relationships in their 20s and, you know, they're like, OK, I'm just going to continue my career, serial monogamy for a little bit of time. And now in my 30s, I've been told that it's time to to settle down. This is OK. You know, it's it's this is the time. And then. The market flips <laughs> quite quite suddenly. Yeah, yeah, it, that, that's 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 the impression I get. Also, it depends on where you live and and all of these other things. I mean, there's all these parameters. Uh, I think, like you know, getting this stuff done early uh, reduces a lot of lifetime stress. Even if, I mean, even if like you get married at 25 and you get divorced at 45, uh, for example, uh, I mean, that's that's the key period of your life when you're supposed to be married. To be frank. You know, it's supposed to be kind of in a relationship and having kids and, you know, raising a family. So um, I definitely like I, I was actually literally talking to a friend um, yesterday. Uh, you don't know him, but you've probably seen his, seen his Twitter handle. Uh, you know, uh, you probably recognize it, but uh, I can't say who it is. But, you know, high net worth individual. Um, and, you know, he's uh, basically... Uh, ending a relationship because he doesn't want to settle down yet, you know, and I, I was kind of giving him a hard time about it. Uh, but, you know, like he has his own, you know, you know, trade-offs, you know, risk reward trade-offs that he's making. But it's just sad because uh, I think like four years from now, he'll probably look back and think, why didn't he settle down? It's just, you know, I mean, there's only so much partying and fun you can have. And he's had a lot of it, you know, so uh, I think he thinks that there's more out there, but there's probably not. Yeah, that's the thing. Even with partying, you know, there there comes a day where you know it's it's just the 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 
the reward pattern, you know, the utility function is not, it's not the same anymore. You just kind of get, you know, it's, it's, you know, the novelty of it wears off. Maybe not for everyone, obviously. I'm just, I don't, don't want to generalize, but yeah, it's like, you know, how, how long can you keep this up? How long can your liver keep this up? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like I like to have fun, but um, like I said, like I'm kind of like a spectator to all this because uh, I've been in a monogamous like relationship uh, since the early 2000s and you know so it's like just seeing the whole 20 21st century kind of like go by has been interesting to me but it's only an academic interest uh, I don't have any skin in the game yeah I mean I think that's you know I think you you made a good decision just from from my vantage point yeah I mean hindsight this is definitely like hindsight where it's like I wouldn't have known what decision I was making then we didn't know in the early 2000s what was going on yeah. right like we didn't we didn't know the truth like, like 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 you know alex it's like um, i've said this before it's like you know i remember the internet in the 1990s and we thought the internet in the 1990s was going to be like oh my god you get to talk to people in ethiopia and, and macedonia and have like interesting conversations and um you know all these ideas are going to flow and information is going to be free and it turns out one third of the internet is just masturbation and then uh, uh, a lot of the other third of the internet is uh you know, just like people screaming at each other uh, about some, like, whatever, you know, controversy of the day. And then the other third of the internet is um, ad blocking, you know, advertisements you want to ad block. So, like, our utopian visions of the 1990s um, were really, really uh, off in certain ways. Uh, and we didn't anticipate what was going what, what to be unleashed. And, I, you know, I'm obviously exaggerating a bit. Uh, there's, I mean, we're talking now over a computer and you know there's all sorts of things but you have to like make the proactive choice to seek that stuff out instead of like getting high and then like watching porn all day which like i've known of people who've gotten trapped in that rabbit hole you know or um i had a friend i had a friend who was like in the social who's a social justice warrior for a while and i asked him like why he did that he was just like he's just depressed and just like shitting on people made him feel better like once once he got he 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 fixed his depression once he got once he got that solved he realized he didn't want to do that 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 wasn't really a good use of his time and that he was only doing it because he felt crappy about himself so I don't know like I I, I was actually curious I asked him like why do you behave like this because I don't I don't generally try to behave like that but you know there are a lot of people on the internet who do and it's not just on the left it's on the right like. There's a lot of like, you know, like, you know, frog Nazi types. And uh, I'm assuming that they're mostly just like incel losers, you know? So that's just, that's just the reality. Like they're, they're unhappy with themselves. They're unhappy with their situation. And they just take it out on the rest of the world. That's just, just trying to carry on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's very easy to, you know, to, to get dopamine out of these, you know, tribal allegiances and, you know, kind of the simulated battle that you have online and you know it, it feels really important like it feels like you're you know and I'm, I'm guilty of it as well like it feels like you're really debating the future of the of the planet you know it's like it's our our team the red versus blue team and yeah. it's, it's it feels really weighty while you're engaging in it you know and you know, you're, you're, you're it's, it's, it's our evolved psychology kicking in right it's our evolved psychology so we just need to figure out ways figure out ways to like short circuit that and like you know we're all we're all messing up in some way and we just as as long as we acknowledge it and we're trying to like strive towards something better i think that's it's doable it's just uh 
you need to acknowledge the problem first, which some people don't want to do. Like some people are like, well, this is good actually. Like this sort of behavior. There are people who say that, you know, and you don't need that to be a majority of people. You just need that to be enough people who actually believe that this is good, that they'll devote all their time to this. And it just overwhelms, it overwhelms the system. So this is like Pareto principle power line. I, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, one of those things to do, especially now with, you know, COVID bunker life, uh, you know, kind of the online world's taken a, uh, you know, a, a, an outsized uh, role in, in our lives. Um, another thing I want to ask you about, you know, as being a prominent brown person and an advocate and activist uh, on, on, your, uh, on your side, uh, how is it that brown guys are taking over the world? Because I've noticed this. In tech, this is a thing. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Why are you saying that? Like, did you see me tweet that? I think it was in your tweets, but I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, this is a thing. And I feel okay. like you know, no one's okay. really talking about it. Yeah, um, so my, my wife was saying this because she's, she's basically like, you need to like write about it. I'm just like, how many, how many like groups am I going to get like angry at me? You know, I mean, there, there's got to be a limit of what I can handle. Yeah. So she was saying that too. So anyways, go on. No, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's not like polite to, to notice, obviously, because it's, you know, something that uh, is uh, is tied to ethnicity and uh, even noticing anything is like, is, is a bit weird. But like, I've worked in tech and I've worked in finance and, you know, at the intersection of tech and finance, you have a lot of founders, a lot of people who are either, you know, South Asian, you're, they're either, you know, Bangladeshi, uh, you know, they, they come from a very particular part of Asia. And it's a lot of times people who are, you know, in, in leadership positions who have a lot of initiative uh, and they're, they're making stuff and they're making stuff all over the West. And, you know, Silicon Valley has a, a crazy preponderance of, of guys from, you know, India. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what, uh, what is this and why, why is no one talking about it? I mean, I know why people aren't talking about it, but why is it? Yeah, I mean, combination? yeah. I think in terms of what it is is um and like you know there's a pns paper about why um why south asians are doing better in management than east asians but i think you also like there was an article in political recently about like asian americans getting involved in politics and it was all about east asians well then why was it about east asians because i mean uh you have people like ro Khanna, pramila jayapal that are pretty prominent in congress and of course the vice president is you know her mother is a tamil brahmin you know, or was a Tamil Brahmin. And so I don't think anybody would ask, like, how, do, how are South Asians going to get involved in politics? You have Nikki Haley on the other side, who's going to be a likely contender. So that's just not an issue. So I think um, between South and East Asians, I think there's a cultural personality difference. Um, I think East Asian societies are um, more into politeness. And, you know, when my parent, when my father came to the United States, uh, you know, they, they gave them like kind of some cultural primers about like how to um, basically get along with the majority of society. And like one thing they said is uh, a lot of Asians, um, they think when you're talking to someone who's a superior looking down and not making eye contact is respectful. But Americans think you're hiding something. So overwhelm your instinct and look at them in the eye. Okay. And so there's things like this that I think uh, probably affect um, East Asian um, East Asians getting higher up uh, in the management. South Asians, a lot of brown dudes uh, were pretty aggressive, uh, really verbally oriented. And, um, you know, our personalities are a little bit more outgoing, I think. There's difference within the subcontinent. South Indians tend to have a reputation to be uh, a little less boisterous than North Indians, particularly Punjabis. Uh, every brown person who's listening to this knows exactly what I'm saying. Uh, but in any case, uh, it, it's still within a range, I think, um, of like uh, 
behavior uh, and kind of just like the social expectations uh, that um, fit in well with, I'll call it white Anglo culture, you know, because that's the, that was the hegemonic culture of Silicon Valley. And uh, I think it was kind of on the same plane um, in the level of like consensus, the, the way consensus and decisions are made in East Asian societies. I just wonder if it doesn't gel well. And so over time, I, I wouldn't be surprised if like as more and more of the East Asians are you know, born and raised in the United States, um, there's less of a divergence. I think part of this is just that if you have immigrants from China and immigrants from India, the ones from India uh, come from a much more chaotic society where people have to be more interpersonally aggressive. And uh, that works well in the United States uh, in terms of just like, you know, if you talk, you'll be noticed. If you talk, you'll be noted. And uh, if you don't talk, you'll just kind of disappear, you know, and people won't even think of you. And so I think um, the prominence, especially like, uh, you, know, you know, subcontinental men uh, in places like tech, it's like a combination of skills, aptitude, orientation, but also I think like a cultural fit. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of white guys about this too, where they just say, uh, you know, they've been pretty candid privately with me. Like, yeah, we're kind of more comfortable with brown guys than East Asians. Because East Asians are just like, like they're, they're like Chinese colleagues. They're just quieter. They don't verbalize. They don't vocalize as much. So if you're talking about, um, if you're talking about like a social situation they're like well i mean indians from india they can kind of speak english they're really different but uh, they're just more talkative and outgoing so it's just more comfortable interacting with them uh, in non-work situations and as you know a lot of connections are made in these non-work situations you know so that's that's my intuition of what's going on i think it's it's probably driven by a personality difference a lot of the uh, a lot of the brown people that you obviously meet are also uh, they you know, had a high status in the subcontinent. Uh, and, you know, like they literally had like, you know, families of servants living with them and stuff like that. So uh, these are like, you know, not all of them, like some of them are, come from poorer families that engage in upward mobility, but a huge number of them uh, have uh, really, really elite connections uh, to, you know, you know, whether it's like the, some upper caste or some business class or, you know, whatever. And so they're just, they're, they're porting their kind of like social capital um, and their elite connections just to the United States. Uh, there is some homophily. So there are, there are, there's some issue, issue where like certain subgroups of Indians, uh, they kind of coordinate together to do startups uh, or, you know, do projects because they're comfortable with each other. They have like a native language that they speak. Uh, now, some white people in the valley are convinced that there's like a brown conspiracy. I do have to say that that's a little much because uh, if brown people were capable of these sorts of cohesive conspiracies, the subcontinent would look a lot different. Uh, they're just like there's not there's just way too much heterogeneity for it to be kind of a situation where like oh well we're gonna hire our own kind because like, to be frank like a, a South Indian Brahmin and a North Indian Punjabi Jat they don't actually think of themselves as quote their own kind. You know, like they, they don't, they don't really have like the same sort of like affinity that you would expect just based on you coding them as Indian, right? So I think a lot of it has to do with personality. It has to do with the social capital that they're bringing um, and, and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I mean, these sorts of like discursive uh, and verbose tendencies are super useful 
uh, in the valley because like, you, you have the technical skills you could code but then you also have to pitch okay you have to pitch to raise money uh, you have to um, you have to like promote market yourself you know like Steve Jobs was not like a great programmer you know he was you know he, he presented a vision and so if you can present like a charismatic vision uh, your company can go far so I think that those are those are the things that that I believe. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, there's a lot of subcontinental people in a globalized world. They're just going to become more and more prominent. Um, and I, as for why uh, they people are talking about it, um, at least in a direct way, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, the hegemonic idea of white supremacy, like it's kind of an inconvenient fact, you know. And so they don't want, they don't really want to like admit that white supremacy is not is not, like to be frank, it's not really that determinative. You know, because right now the idea in the United States is like everything is due to systemic racism and structural and white supremacy. And I just think that's actually false, to be frank. Um, and I think, you know, stuff like in the Valley shows how it's false, where you have like a bunch of people who don't, you know, they speak English with an accent. They're not really fluent in the culture, but they're aggressive. They have some skills and they believe in themselves and boom, look what's happening, you know? that kind of falsifies the narrative and it's not something that the mainstream wants to accept. I mean, like 10, 15 years ago, I think it would be much people, even in the nineties, people were much more open to it because we didn't have this ideology theology that white supremacy determines everything. Uh, so the nineties and the two thousands, they'd be like, Oh, look at all these immigrants starting, starting, uh, you know, startups and stuff like that. But now I don't think they really want to admit that these people have any talent or skill that's special. Uh, it's just because they're white adjacent or multiracial white. Like, this is like a common experience where it's like people are just, well, it's because you're actually white, like you're part of the white power structure and you're using the white power structure. And it's just like, this is just like, stupid. You know, it's just stupid, but uh, this is just the world we live in. And uh, that's why there are people who are Indian who are going back. Uh, like obviously the ones that were born and raised there, come here, make some money, and then go back. But, I mean, you know, we probably know people, I mean, I know people, you probably do too, who are, like, born and raised in the United States who are thinking of leaving and going back to India or somewhere in Asia because uh, they just see more opportunities there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a hot... Yeah, yeah go it's on. A, it's, a, it's also an interesting phenomenon to see that a lot of, like, very virulent, woke people, I think especially women, are from the subcontinent. I mean, is there is there a, something to be noticed there? Is there a pattern? Because it seems like... Yeah, yeah, no, that's the thing. That's the thing. Multiple, multiple, multiple friends of my DM me about that. They're just like, dude, like, what is up with that? Um, so, I mean, I think part of it, again, is a lot of these women, um, you know, they're leveraging, they're leveraging what American society gives them, you know? So, so you know... Um, their parents could be doctors, upper middle class, you know, they went to Columbia, I don't know. But American society tells them they have brown skin, so they're, so they're marginalized. So they have really high verbal skills. Uh, they're in it to win it. And American society just gave them a chainsaw. So they're just going. They're, do, they're, do, they're doing, I don't think it's ethical. I, I really dislike it, and I try to call it out sometimes because I'm just like, look, I know that your ancestors like had servants that would like take their crap out for like 300 years. Like literally like there's, there's casts that like deal in feces. Right. And it's like these, so these people, like they, they were at the top of a hierarchy that was like, pretty exploitative in a lot of ways. And sometimes they'll like self-flagellate about that. But I mean, you know, my issue is, uh, so 
the idea is in American society, it, all that matters is your whiteness. And so we don't have whiteness, therefore we're marginalized. I think that's just empirically wrong. But the problem is like, what do you do when you're an atheist in a society that's Christian? So that's, that's where we are today where, you know, I can say that like, I never perceived myself as, like I knew I was more privileged than a lot of the people that I grew up with who were white. But that's like saying that the devil is good to a Christian. Like it doesn't, it doesn't compute to a lot of Americans now because they've been indoctrinated to this idea that whiteness is, uh, is like this magical thing. You know, like white skin is like magic fairy dust and it makes you a naturally successful person. Just ignore, just ignore your, just ignore your eyes and like what you read about white life expectancy, the immiseration of the white working class. Uh, you know, the opioid epidemic, all of these things. Just ignore all of that. Like you, you know, who has, you know, a graduate degree and whose parents are doctors, who is from like an elite, like stratum of South Asian society, you're actually the marginalized one. Like this is what the ideology is telling them. And so a lot of them just run with it. Now, privately, there's this faction where it's just like they know they're being fake, but then they'll say like, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, like, this is just the tool that, this is just, this is like the leverage that I'm being given. Uh, the society is insane, right? So I think that's why that's going on. Um, just like Asians in general, East Asians do it too. Uh, I don't think they, frankly, pull it off as well. <laughs> uh, just again, again, this is like, this is kind of like the, the ver uh, uh, verbal pugilism uh, that South Asians are capable of. Um, it's, uh, it's a toxic combination with uh, the tools uh, of the current paradigm of white supremacy, because basically Priya from Brookline is an extremely privileged human being, uh, but she's being told and validated by all of society that she's actually underprivileged and she can just like destroy people verbally wherever she wants. And I've had friends who are in academia where it's like when they see and this in a non-science class when they see a discussion section and there's a brown woman like they shiver with fear uh, because they know they know she could just like look at you know if they're a white male she could just look at them and just start talking at them about how they're oppressive and they just have to just kind of nod and go along because like they have they have no tools so they can't punch down that's how it's perceived now again these people aren't stupid like she knows that she's privileged and he knows that she's privileged but you can't say that you know you you just, you just can't say that because certain truths cannot be acknowledged in our American society, and that's just how it is. I mean, I say it, but, you know, people either ignore me or they get mad at me or, you know, they just say I'm crazy. Yeah, so I, I'm not... why do you say it? Why Why is it you that is, uh, is saying it? Like, what's, uh, what animates you to say the unsayable? Well, I mean, uh, pe people tell me, people, people, people tell me I should say it, so I do. I mean, it's just what everyone thinks, you know? I mean, I don't know. It's just like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, everyone has a price. Like, uh, I, I'll, go, I'll go woke for, like, uh, for Elon type money. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a price, you know what I'm saying? Like if you show me, if you show me the cash, like I will, I'll say whatever you want me to say. <laughs> but at this point, um, I, no one's like offering me money to conform. So I'm not going to conform, you know, like I'm just going to say what I think is true. And um, a lot of people agree with me. I don't know. It's just like a compulsion. Uh, I've always been like that. And so um, it's, it's, it's kind of one of the things when you see like preference false, falsification constructs, I just like to point it, point it out. And then like privately people just laugh and they're like, yeah, that's exactly what's going on there. Cause I don't, I don't, I don't like this fakery uh, that we see in American society. Um, and I also think the fakery is destructive. There's certain like 
there's certain like fake constructs that maybe elevate uh, where you, you aspire. So for example, uh, you know, a lot of parents say you should judge people on, uh, on their insides, not their outsides. That's fake. Uh, most people want to get with someone that's as good looking as possible, blah, blah, blah. But that's a good sentiment. And I still think that people should aspire to it. And there are people that I know who actually lived that. And we, I think a lot of us admire them. Or we used to, I don't know, maybe people laugh at them now. Uh, but I've, I've known of situations where, yeah, they took that to heart. They did that. I'm just like, damn, that's like a saintly, that's like we would say, that's a saintly person. Like that's a person that you would want to be. Um, but it's kind of fake. But it's a good thought. It's a good ideal to strive for. I think a lot of the fakery today, it's just destructive. So the idea that if you are a white uh, person, that your skin color and your racial status gives you uh, like magical superpowers, it's fake, but I think it's really destructive. It's destructive to white people. It's destructive to non-white people uh, all around. Like I have, uh, I have friends who are in academia who come from um, working class backgrounds and they've, they, think, they, they think that now that they have tenure and whatever, uh, well, since they're white, they're just assimilated into the upper bourgeois, the lower bourgeois, whatever, you know, the upper middle class, right? And I actually think that's false. Uh, I think uh, economists like Greg Clark have shown why that's false. Like there's some evidence that class status is more persistent than that. Uh, but I can't really get through to them because they've been told that if you're white and you make enough money, you're automatically assimilated. I'm like, bro, like you don't have the social networks. You don't have the social connections. Just some of the things you say, uh, just your social cues, they're implicitly telling people what your class status is. Like, you know, it's not just your skin color. It's not like people don't know, you know, it's like they know. And you're never going to, you're never going to create the social network that some of your other colleagues that are white who have the same occupational status as you have. You know, and so your kids are not going to benefit in the same way as their kids would benefit. So this is kind of an empirical argument that I'm making based on economic history and you know social science, but it just goes over people's heads. And they're just and these are academics; they're just annoying. They're just like, well, we were taught that it's white supremacy, and yes, there is class issues. But if you're a white person who becomes upper middle class, you're just like all the other upper middle class white people. And I'm saying, no, actually, you're not like all the upper middle class white people. That's just not. This is factually not true, and here's the evidence, and it just causes annoyance, you know? But I think it's destructive for them, for them not to understand that their kids, uh, are, they, can't, they can't be pa passive, because like their kids don't have the same advantages as the other white professors, for example, you know? I think, I think it is destructive for them. And as for like non-white people, I think, it's just, I think it causes fatalism, I think it causes dissension, I think it causes hatred, um, there are like Asian American males that I know who, you know, have issues with dating and they blame their race when the reality is they're obese and they don't really have much of an engaging personality, right? And so uh, they blame these big structural forces for things that they can actually control. Uh, and so like they've given themselves over uh, to passivity and hopelessness and fatalism. And so I think fatalism is a huge issue with these overwhelming deterministic sociological models that we promote uh overall and like this is this is not just with our current hegemonic system of systemic racism white supremacy and all that stuff like in general you know marxism had a weird fatalistic you know trend too like you just sit back and let history go right uh that that didn't really work out so i, I think uh, 
we need to avoid fatalism and continue to strive to be better. And when you have ideologies that encourage fatalism, you know, I, you know, currently we have fatalism and complacency, those two things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's learned helplessness at a, at a societal scale. Um, um, I also wanted to, uh, ask you the, the last question, cause I know we're coming up on time here. Uh, it's, um, do you have a, a subversive thinker, someone who's, you know, influenced your, your thinking, um, you know, could be living or dead, uh, that you'd like to recommend to people because you're not getting enough airtime, like the, that, Ooh, that okay. they should be a bit more, um, a bit more known about. Let me think, um, a subversive yeah i don't know like i mean subversive is the key because like i feel like the people that i'm interested in are not often subversive um well i mean i do think i mean your audience is probably familiar with leo strauss but i i do think leo strauss's insights about um you know basically cryptic knowledge and writing in a way that's esoteric uh, i thought it was crazy when i first encountered it but i first encountered it in the 1990s which i feel was like a much more open time uh, and today, uh, with, uh, you know, thought police, uh, sometimes literally as in, in England, um, it's, I think it is much more, uh, useful, uh, to be able to communicate, uh, in an esoteric way with a select subset and use it, use public channels. Like you, you can communicate in plain sight. Right. Uh, and so Leo Strauss is like, you know, core thesis is that the ancients, uh, wrote in basically a code uh, for you know their elite the elite peers and then they wrote in a more exoteric way like more like superficial way for the general public right and whether he was right in the details or not is irrelevant to me I think that general framework of thinking uh, is much more useful uh, than I would have thought a generation than I would have thought when I was young partly because I was uh, probably captured by the idea of the Whiggish idea of history and that we were going to this like you know, liberal end of history and everyone was going to be open-minded and tolerant and all that stuff. It's just, we're way less tolerant now in the 2020s than we were in the 2000s and the 1990s. It was a much more open time intellectually uh, and people would entertain all sorts of ideas and you could just be free and open to say what you wanted to say. Uh, today, that's just not possible. You have to speak in code. You have to signal um, whoever you are. Uh, you have to just kind of like make people aware but not everybody because there's people out there out to get you. And so I think that that insight is, is pretty deep. And I think people should take it much more seriously. And I say this from experience because I think it's a, for an American, I think it's a bizarre idea. It's a bizarre concept because we are the home of the brave, the land of the free. Uh, that's our marketing. And I think a lot of us growing up take it to heart. And this just seems cowardly and bizarre and weird, but it's actually quite useful and I think it's been pretty common across many societies uh, because the, the, the norm of, of human affairs has not been kind of like open-minded liberalism. Yeah, it isn't even under open-minded liberalism, which teaches you a little bit about, about human affairs. Um, yeah, is this, is this your way of, of telling everyone that you are writing in code and that we should start you know, interpreting your writing in a, in a, in a deep, deeper, more esoteric way? Um, Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Sometimes people tweet at me and they're like, I don't understand what you're saying. And I just respond, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you don't understand what I'm saying, 
I don't want you to understand what I'm saying. Yeah, this is a, a rule of Twitter. Never, never explain, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it, that, that, that's the issue, though, is like Twitter is, uh, it's, it's obviously it's toxic in a lot of ways. We all know it. We all understand it. But it's so useful in other ways. And so I'm trying to figure out ways to still continue to use it without being caught up into, you know, the toxicity. And I think like being esoteric uh, really helps because the people that I want to communicate with generally understand what I'm saying. And everybody else who might be triggered, they just scratch their head. You know what I'm saying? They, they just, they, they have no idea. And so, uh, you know, like, for example, I talk about the Kali Yuga a lot. And I mean, if you're Indian, you know what that means. But if you're not Indian, you don't, although a lot of people who like follow me closely now know what I mean, know what I'm saying. I'm saying some pretty harsh things about American society, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like really harsh things. Uh, but uh, most of the people following me have no idea what I'm saying. And so they're just going along on their way and I'm not offending their sensibilities and I'm not like ruining their day. But the other people who I want to understand, they understand what I'm actually saying, like that we are like at the end and this is, this is, uh, this is a you know, perverted state of the way the world should be uh, in terms of like human flourishing. And uh, this is why we are the richest people in the history of the world with supercomputers in our pockets, but so many of us are miserable. There's some serious, like, ethical problems, uh, cultural problems that we have in our society that we're not confronting. And so I think, like, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear it. A lot of people want to hear that we're getting better, it gets better. Like, there was a thing in the late 2000s, early, early teens, like, the It Gets Better project. Uh, about how it gets better from when you're a teenager. And there was some truth to that, but really what the 2020s is probably showing us is it doesn't get better. You know, it gets worse, it gets crueler, it gets harsher, uh, it gets raw, and uh, this is where we are. So, yeah, I'm an optimistic person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I echo your sentiment about uh, the Kali Yuga and about being esoteric on, on the TL. Uh, it, it does help. And also not explaining, you know, like, like you said, it, yeah. it, uh, it separates the wheat from the chaff and we want to keep the wheat and that's, that's fine. Uh, so thanks so much, Razib. This was, this was really enjoyable. I'm, I'm happy we, we made it happen. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. Awesome. It was nice meeting you, Alex. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 